Good evening. Welcome to Military Crime and Punishment. Let me tell you a little bit more about this this podcast and and who it is that you're listening to right now. Um, I used to be an investigator and a former police officer, etc., etc. I was at the military police investigations. And I'll tell you, uh, the philosophy of this whole podcast is that we're never going to end on one of those cliffhangers, you know, who really did it, you know, kind of thing. Because I'll tell you what, as an investigator, I hated that. I always wanted to know what really happened. I want to know the truth of the situation. I don't want to just like some people talk about that uh, they thought that during the crime, you know, the the cops had a narrative and they wanted to find evidence to to prove their narrative. I was never that way. I wanted to wanted to come to the to the truth of the matter no matter what it was. But I wanted to have an end to the story and that's why I'm doing a podcast like this that always has an end to the story because um, I hate those mysteries. I just hate them and uh, I'm not going to do that with this podcast either. Now tonight we'll discuss a case that literally has had books written about it thousands of pages long it spawned a lot of controversy. There are legal scholars at law schools who have spent years studying this incident. It's a perfect illustration how the US military is slowly gaining more and more power. When I was in the army as a military policeman, an accused person had to have a military connection to come under the jurisdiction of a court-martial. In other words, if she was off-duty, off a military base, and she kicked somebody's butt in a bar fight in Colleen, Texas. Then the Colleen police arrested her and the local civilian court handled the case. This is what happened to my friend, Amos Victor Tichinell Jr. back in 1981. The Army did transfer him from the military police to the infantry at Fort Hood, but that was kind of the extent of it, at least as far as the Army's concerned. Now contrast that to the man in our story here. He's in civilian clothes standing before a military judge awaiting sentence. He is a civilian. He's never been in the military. Yet he's being sentenced to 115 days of confinement served in a military prison. How'd this happen? Well therein lies the story and uh, I better start at the beginning. You may have heard about the so-called military companies. They're private corporations. The corporation is hired by the Defense Department to provide services. I considered working for one of these places until my wife threatened divorce if I did. I've had uh, two friends of mine that were hired as security and to work in military detention centers in Cuba and Iraq. At the time this story takes place in 2008, about 180,000 civilian contractors are working in Iraq. That's more than the reported troop strength in the country at the time. It seems that there's a greater need for civilian contractors than there is a need for military personnel in an occupied country. Now you can contrast that with World War II where there were some contractors but they were far less than the amount of troops on occupation duty. The convicted man before the military judge was Mr. Allah Muhammad Ali a naturalized citizen of Canada. He was reportedly an immigrant to Canada after fleeing Iraq in the aftermath 
of Saddam Hussein's violent suppression of the 1991 Shiite uprising. He was born in Baghdad and spoke the local language like the native he was. After the invasion of Iraq in 2003, Ali was hired as an interpreter and sent to Iraq by Reston, Virginia-based L3 Communications Titan Group. Under its contract with the U.S. Army, L3 Titan provides approximately 7,000 interpreters in Iraq. According to a January 2008 L3 Titan press release, this contract generated $738 million in sales uh, in the year of 2007. Before Ali was hired and sent to Iraq, he went to an army base at Fort Benning, Georgia for pre-deployment training. The training took place January 14, 2008 through January 21st. That's one week of training for a civilian about to be sent to a combat zone. It seems that a civilian can learn in one week what it took me six weeks to learn in basic training. No wonder they get so much pay if they're working at six times the speed of a soldier. During training, Ali signed a document informing him that he was subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which he later denied having been told. Ali was assigned to serve as an interpreter for the 1st Squad, 3rd Platoon, 170th Military Police Company, stationed at the forward operating base in Hit, Iraq. 1st Squad was tasked with training and advising the Iraqi police. As an interpreter, Ali accompanied 1st Squad on its missions and served as the direct link between the squad and the Iraqi police officers. Ali wore the same clothing as the soldiers, but was not issued a weapon. Initially, Ali lived with the soldiers of the 1st Squad, but when, he was, when the squad was moved to a different location, he lived with other interpreters serving with the 3rd Platoon. For administration purposes, Ali was supervised by the L3 site manager in Al-Assad, Iraq. But for operational purposes, he reported directly to Staff Sergeant Butler, squad leader for the 1st Squad. Ali saw combat on several occasions with the squad. As an interpreter, he was a, a special target of the insurgents, who knew he was a key part of the squad's mission, and if they could get rid of him, it would severely uh, detract from their mission. On February 23, 2008, Ali had a verbal altercation with another Iraqi interpreter, Mr. Al-Umari, on a remote U.S. Military Forward Operating Base, or FOB, FOB, in Al-Anbar Province. You might have heard of Al-Anbar Province. It, uh, it uh, has made the news many times. During this altercation, Al-Umari struck Ali upside the head with his fist. The incident was reported to Staff Sergeant Butler. While Ali was alone in Butler's room, waiting for the squad leader to return, he took a knife off Butler's weapons belt without Butler's permission or knowledge. Ali later had another altercation with Al-Umari, which resulted in four cuts to Al-Umari's chest and a bloody nose for Ali. Now you could say cuts or stab wounds, yeah, seen it both ways. When the military police investigated Ali, uh, he tried to lie about what happened and hide the knife. Six days after the assault, Ali was moved to Camp Victory near Baghdad. He was with the squad 
a little over a month. Now the Camp Victory Base Complex, also known as VBC, is an amalgam of military installations around the Baghdad International Airport. The complex includes 10 bases, Victory Fuel Point, Slayer, Striker, Cropper, Liberty, Radwamina, Palace, Dublin, Sather Air Base, Logistics Base, Sites, and of course Victory. The most important one is Camp Victory. It hosts the headquarters for all the U.S. operations in Iraq. The camp also includes the Alpha Palace. Ali was placed on restricted liberty, which prohibited him from leaving Victory Base Complex around the Baghdad airport and required that he check in with L3 twice a day. L3 was aware of this restriction. Ali violated it and traveled to Al-Assad. He was apprehended and put in a military police jail on February the 29th. On March 27th, charges were preferred against Ali and on April 9th, 2008, he was fired by L3. On May the 10th, the charges were referred to a general court-martial and on May 24th, 2008, Ali's consul filed a motion to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction. I should say here that uh, a general court-martial is the highest in the chain of court-martials possible. Gives you the most rights and can sentence you to the harshest punishments. A military judge considered the Ali's motion and uh, decided that the military did have jurisdiction over the Canadian civilian and allowed the case to proceed to the general court-martial. This was very interesting and controversial ruling. You see, there had been some convictions of contractors during the Vietnam War, but since Vietnam was not a declared war, all the convictions had been overturned on appeal. It was settled case law in my day during the 1980s that civilians could not be subjected to courts martial. All that changed with a few words. In 2006, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham added language to the U.S. defense spending bill that made civilians working for the U.S. military in a, quote, contingency operation, unquote, subject to court-martial. The provision was intended to close the legal loophole that made it difficult to successfully prosecute such individuals in conflicts where Congress had not formally declared a state of war. This was a real problem with members of the Blackwater Company opened fire on a group of Iraqi civilians. It seems that nobody thought they had the ability to try any of the contractors for the alleged murders. In 2000, civilian contractors working for Dynacorp during the United States Army peacekeeping operations in Bosnia-Herzegovina were investigated for human trafficking and prostitution. Because there was no option of prosecuting the contractors in federal district court or by courts martial, the only possible venue for prosecution was the Bosnian government, which declined to prosecute. With no other options, the contractors were returned to the United States without prosecution. In his book, Civilian Court Martial Jurisdiction and United States vs. Ali, a re-examination of the historical practice. Lieutenant Colonel Mark Visker 
a legal professor at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, says, Civilian contractors serving with the United States military overseas exist in a legal gray zone with jurisdictional problems limiting options for prosecuting their criminal misconduct. Oftentimes, they are exempt from host nation prosecution under the terms of the Status of Forces Agreement, an agreement between the United States and the host nation that outlines the terms and conditions under which American forces operate in the host nation's territory. Now, a Status of Forces Agreement is a very important document, I can tell you. It governed the way I was treated under the law for the entire three years that I was living in Europe. Now, Colonel Visker continues. Until recently, prosecution in the United States was not possible in these situations unless the statute in question applied extraterritorially. Given the potential for serious criminal conduct to go unpunished, Congress passed the Military Extraterritorial Jurisdiction Act, or MEJA, in 2000 which created jurisdiction in the United States District Court for felony offenses committed by civilians accompanying United States forces overseas. Despite good intentions, MEJA was, didn't work well in practice. Very few prosecutions have been brought, and generally only the most serious conduct has resulted in criminal prosecution, particularly because the decision to prosecute is made by the United States Attorney in the defendant's home district and because of the difficulty of prosecuting conduct taking place overseas. The facts of the case presented a perfect test case for the government in this Ali case. Under the terms of MEJA, Mr. Ali was exempt from prosecution in the United States federal court because he wasn't an American citizen. He was a host nation citizen and a citizen of Canada. In addition, the government was able to demonstrate a close nexus between his work and actual combat and showed a direct impact of all these offenses on the unit's combat mission. If the legal argument is the thing that interests you the most and you want to get into the weeds about this case, then you're in luck. I have a recording of the actual debate in the military appeals court. It's a little longer than an hour and 10 minutes, and you can hear the actual military officers debate the legality of convicting a civilian in a court-martial. I'll make it as a part two of this extra episode to this podcast. The way the law stands today, it brings nine classes of people under martial law. Yes, this is the dreaded martial law you hear people talking about. The people that are subject to martial law today are active duty military, and that includes newly sworn in trainees, cadets and midshipmen in officer training programs like the Officers Candidate School, Reserve Officer Training uh, Corps, the Service Academies, uh, military reservists and National Guardsmen on federal duty, retirees, members of the Fleet Reserve and United States Marine Corps Fleet Reserves, persons in military jail serving a sentence from a court-martial, members of the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration and the Public Health Service, prisoners of war in U.S. custody, persons accompanying the military, contractors and DOD civilian, 
personnel overseas outside of the United States and its territories. So this is how Mr. Ali, a Canadian civilian, came to be standing before a U.S. military officer convicted of a false official statement, wrongful appropriation, and wrongfully endeavoring to impede an investigation in violation of Articles 107, 121, and 134 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Makes me glad my wife talked me out of being a government contractor. She also made it clear that I am retired and won't be working part-time for any local police agency either. Something about which she is not going through all that crap again. Now, if you want to comment on this episode or send me a message about anything, you can send me an email at asthekeyturns at mail.com. I'll put the address in the description of this episode. And as always, thanks for listening.